Nick Carter's Ghost Story, Chapter 4 Millie Stevens After questioning the two men whom he had found in the stable, Nick walked toward the house. On the way he met Horace Richmond. Mrs. Stevens has gone home, said Horace. She would not remain for dinner, though she has such a long ride before her. She seems terribly distressed by this strange affair. What did your uncle say to her? Not much, was the reply, and I was a good deal surprised. He begged her not to be nervous about it and talked very pleasantly to her, but he stayed clear of the matter with jewels. I don't understand it. I thought he would insist upon what he calls a restitution of the property. Perhaps, after all, said Nick, he isn't so far off his base on the ghost question as you think he is. Don't you deceive yourself about that. He is just as sure that his aunt's spirit removed those jewels as you are that this house is resting on its foundations. And I wouldn't try to shake his belief just now, continued Horace seriously. Simply say nothing about the affair this evening. Talk about something else to him. Stay with us as long as you can, and quietly look the ground over, and tell me privately what you think. This advice seemed good to Nick. He passed a quiet evening in the house, and nobody but Mrs. Pond referred to the robberies. Horace managed to quiet her quickly. But the next morning after breakfast she came to Nick with a very long face. "'My father has been talking to me,' she said, "'and I'm going to lose those jewels, surely, unless you do something and do it very quickly. I don't care for their value, but they're mine by right, and I mean to keep them if I can. But of course I can't bear to make my father's life miserable. It will probably end by my compelling my husband to let me give them up.' Nick had his doubts about the possibility of such a thing, and there were made certainties very soon afterwards. Mr. Pond arrived unexpectedly. When the story was told to him, he danced the war dance, as our young friend Patsy might have expressed it. "'You don't seem to realize the importance of this matter,' he exclaimed. "'Why, it's a million-dollar robbery. That's what it is. If we give up the jewels, the colonel will give us their value. By jingo, he'll have to. Well, what's that but a theft of a million from him?' Nick was compelled to confess that it was just that, and nothing else. "'And who'll reap the proceeds?' continued Pond. "'Why, the Stevenses, of course. Nobody else gets anything out of it. They're playing on the Colonel's superstitions for a million-dollar stake. Now, Mr. Carter, you go ahead and work this thing out. Catch the thief. Don't let the Colonel get you out of the way. If there's a question of money, I'm good for the best fee you can name.' Nick's first move that day was to go to Mrs. Stevens' house. She lived well on her small income. It was a nice old country house with grounds of considerable extent, and a stable in which two good horses were kept. Nick rode over there on one of Colonel Richmond's fine saddle horses. As the detective rode up the winding, shading walk toward the house, he noticed a manservant just ahead of him. This servant had a newspaper and some letters in his hand. He seemed to have come from the village post office. Leaning over the railing of the veranda, as if waiting for this servant, was one of the handsomest girls Nick had ever seen. She was a beauty of the dashing, dark-eyed type, a girl of courage and strong will. The servant gave her the letters just as Nick came in sight. He not only gave her those he had been carrying in his hand, but he drew one from his pocket with a motion that suggested secrecy. Nick rode up to the veranda, introduced himself, and asked to see Mrs. Stevens. "'Let James take your horse,' said the girl. "'Come into the house, if you please. "'I will speak to my mother.' Nick went into the cool and pretty parlour. Miss Stevens left the room for a moment, and then returned with her mother. 
The detective spoke of the occurrences of the day before and requested permission to see the room in which the jewellery had so mysteriously appeared. While they were talking thus, it happened that Miss Stevens drew her handkerchief from her pocket, and as she did so, two little pieces of paper fell to the floor. So she's read that letter and torn it up soon, was Nick's silent comment. Almost immediately, Miss Stevens said, There's the mail on the table, mother. I forgot to give it to you. There were several letters. Mrs. Stevens glanced at the addresses. They're all for me, she said. Was there nothing for you? No, indeed, cried the girl. There's nobody who writes letters to me. Lies to her mother, does she, said Nick to himself. Well, it begins to look bad for her. Miss Stevens did not notice the bits of paper on the floor, and Nick, by clever work, succeeded in getting possession of them. Then, by Mrs. Stevens' permission, he went to look at the room already referred to. No sooner was he there than he got rid of the lady upon some plausible excuse, and so had an opportunity of examining the bits of paper. They were ordinary letter paper, impossible to trace. One bit was blank on both sides. The other bore some queer little marks, but no writing. To Nick, the marks were quite clear. They were the dots and dashes of the Morse telegraphic alphabet. He represented the letters N, T, B, E, T, R, A, written very small on a narrow scrap, not more than an inch long. Don't betray, muttered Nick. Worse and worse, Miss Stevens will evidently bear watching. As to the room, his inspection of it was of little use. He had not expected much. He had come to see Miss Stevens, principally, and in her case, the investigation had certainly begun better than he could have reasonably expected. She was engaged in some secret affair. She concealed letters from her mother. She had bribed one of the servants. This last fact was proven by the manner in which the letter had been delivered to her. As he was turning these matters over in his mind, Mrs. Stevens and her daughter entered the room. "'What have you discovered, Mr. Carter?' said the girl. "'You must know that my mother has told me all about this strange affair, and I am deeply interested.' I have learned nothing, said Nick, except that this room can be easily entered even when the doors are locked. Take this door leading to the rear room, for instance. The key was on this side, it is true, but it turns very easily. A person with a pair of nippers could get in without trouble and lock the door afterward. I can't tell from the appearance of the key whether or not this was done, but I think it probable. You mean that somebody came in here while Mother was at lunch, and put the jewels where they were found? Exactly. But who could it have been? I don't know, answered Nick, frankly. And how do you explain the presence of that other pin in the box? asked Mrs. Stevens. There is an explanation, said Nick, but I prefer not to give it now. As you please, responded the lady heartily. I can only say that I trust you will find this thief speedily, and end this annoyance to which we are being subjected. I don't think it ought to be hard for a person of your abilities, said Miss Stevens. I have already solved the puzzle. And who is the guilty person? asked Nick with a smile. Uh, Colonel Richmond, of course. Why should he do this? Because he's crazy, that's reason enough. I'd like to hear you explain your theory a little further. Why, Mr. Carter, I'm surprised at you. Is there any motive for this so-called crime? No, then it must be a crazy person's work. Is there more than one lunatic among us? Certainly not. So as two and two make four, and the sun doesn't rise in the west, Colonel Richmond is the man. What kind of detective do you think I'd make? There isn't anyone alive who could compare with you, said Nick. You're joking. No, I'm serious. There are plenty of detectives who can reason up to the wrong man, but none, I'm sure, who can do it so quickly as you can. Mrs. Stevens laughed at her daughter's discomfiture, and the girl joined heartily. 
Supposing for a moment that your theory is true, continued Nick, how do you suppose that Colonel Richmond managed to get the jewels over here? The girl became serious in a moment. This is a very delicate subject, she said. I hate to cast suspicion upon anyone. You refer to the new servant, of course. Well, we know nothing about the girl, said Mrs. Stevens, and of course, when anything so strange happens in the house, we naturally think of her. She brought good references, and she certainly looks honest. Did she have an opportunity to put the jewels into this room? As to that, I have talked it over with my daughter, and it seems just possible that the girl could have done it. I thought at first that it was not. Of course it was possible, exclaimed Miss Stevens. She could have run up the back stairs at any time. She proceeded to explain this theory until it seemed quite plausible. And yet all the time she was filling the detective's mind with the blackest suspicions against herself. Here was the case. The plotters were trying to work on Colonel Richmond's superstitions. A celebrated detective had been called in. If he succeeded, the plotters failed, and the Stevenses lost the jewels. What more natural than that the criminal should wish to throw the detective on a wrong scent? Was it not to be expected that they should pitch upon this new servant as the best person with whom to deceive Nick? Altogether, Miss Stevens was making out a very strong case against herself. Chapter 5 Colonel Richmond's Night Adventure Of course Nick questioned the servant. To have failed to do that would have been to throw light upon his real suspicions. She was a tall, slender, and rather pretty Irish girl named Annie O'Neill. Her answers to all questions were plain and simple. She told what she had been doing on the previous day while Mrs. Stevens was at lunch. She had not been in the dining room all the time, but had come in twice or thrice when summoned. During the remainder of the time she had been in the kitchen. Nobody had been with her there. When Nick left the house he rode half a mile back along the road, and then dismounted and sat down under a big tree. In a few minutes a farmer's wagon came along. A young man who looked like a farm labourer was riding beside the farmer. He did not ride far beyond the place where Nick was sitting. In a few minutes they sat together under the tree. The young farm labourer was Patsy. "'I got your message,' said Patsy. "'I took the chance to ride over from the station with that fellow, "'and I've asked him a few questions about the house where you want me to go on duty. "'It seems that there's no show to get in there on any pretext. "'I'll have to camp around on the outside like a grass-eater.' "'That won't hurt you, Patsy, my lad,' said Nick. "'The weather's good. "'You ought to keep an eye on the whole household, but on Miss Stevens especially.' This is the way the case looks at present. The girl is doing the work on this end in connection with some confederate concealed in Colonel Richmond's house. You understand the game. It's to work the spirit racket on Colonel Richmond until he buys the jewels from his daughter or her husband, and gives them to Miss Stevens. He must watch for the system by which she communicates with her confederate in Richmond's house. They work the mails, but there must be some quicker means to use in emergencies. Try to snare a letter or get a sight of the other party. And be sure not to jump at conclusions, Patsy. I've told you how the case looks, but it may be any other way. I haven't begun to work down to it yet. Nick mounted his horse, and Patsy strolled away in the direction of the Stevens house. When the detective got back to Colonel Richmond's, it was well along in the afternoon. He spent the remainder of his day exploring the secret recesses of the old house. It was indeed a marvellous place, and Nick got a very high opinion of the ingenuity of the man who had designed its mysterious passages. He got a little else, however. One or two discoveries he certainly made. They were important as indicating that somebody had recently been in the secret passages. 
There was nothing to show what that person had been doing there, but the probability was, of course, that he had concealed himself in the old part of the house while preparing for his operations in Mrs. Pond's room, or while escaping from them. These indications were very vague and did not point to the principal in this affair, that mysterious thief who worked invisibly and by such strange methods. After dinner, Horace Richmond took Nick aside for what he termed a discussion of this ghostly rat. The very devil is in this business, said Horace. The servants are getting scared out of their wits. They all sleep in the old part of the house, you know, and there isn't one of them who hasn't some story to tell of what goes on there in the night. Some of these yarns are the old-fashioned business about sighs and groans and doors opening and shutting without anybody to open and shut them. But under it all, I must say that there seems to be a basis of fact. There's John Gilder, the coachman. You've seen him. Does he look like a man who can be scared easily? I should say not, laughed Nick. He looks to me like a Yankee horse trader who is too intimate with the devil and his ways to be at all alarmed about them. Just so. Well, John Gilder came to me today and told me just as calmly as I'd tell you the time of day that he'd seen the ghost of Miss Lavina Richmond. He saw her right in this room where we are now. They had gone to the large dining hall in the old mansion. Horace sometimes used it as a smoking room, but otherwise it was seldom visited, except when the house was full of guests, and all the old part was thrown open. It was a long and high room, finished in dark wood and decorated with mouldering portraits, in the worst possible style of art. At one end was a gigantic fireplace, which was closed by a screen of boards. He told me, continued Horace, that he was passing through here late last night, near midnight, he said, and that he saw Lavino Richmond standing just about where you stand now. He came in by that door behind me, and she was directly facing him. He says that he didn't move or yell, or do anything, but just stood staring at her. She paid no attention whatever to him, but passed across the room, and went out by the other door, which opened as she approached and closed after her of itself. Then he ran for his room. He claimed that he wasn't scared, only a bit nervous. He can believe that if you want to. I tell you that he was scared, so that he won't get over it in a year. If it wasn't for that, I might think he was lying, but when a man like Gilder quietly invites the footman, whom he always hated, to take half of his bed for a few weeks, it's a sure thing that he's been something out of the ordinary. And the footman, as I learn, was mighty glad to accept the invitation, for he's been having a few experiences of his own. Now, Mr. Carter, you and I believe that these things are done by some clever trickster. It may be that some bogus medium who used to get the colonel's good money away from him wants more of it and is taking this means of driving my uncle back to the fold of true believers. I am beginning to believe that that may be the fact, but whatever it is, the case is almighty serious. Here's a nice old man living happily and gradually getting away from his delusion. Here's an agent of the devil trying to drive this old man back to his delusion and make a lunatic of him, for that's what the doctor says will certainly happen. I say it's too bad not to mention the jewels at all. Now, what are you going to do about it? Catch the rascal, said Nick promptly, and catch him mighty quick. Well, I hope you'll succeed. I tell you, Mr. Carter, I feel toward Colonel Richmond all the affection that I would give my father, if he were alive, and I can't bear to see him driven out of his wits in this infernal way. Have no fear, said Nick. We'll save him. This trickery with the servants may give us a chance to catch our man. He returned to the parlour in the new part of the house. Colonel Richmond was not there. "'Where is he?' asked Horace, anxiously, of Mrs. Pond. "'He's gone to his room. He said that the excitement of this affair had worn him out completely.' Horace looked relieved. Nick said that he, too, would go to his room. He went, but he did not remain long in it. He had a fancy for a quiet stroll around the house on the outside. 
it would be interesting to know whether anybody entered or left it during the night. One of the secret passages of the old house communicated with a sort of tunnel, which had its outer extremity in an old well about twenty yards away. This tunnel had caved in long before, but had been restored by Colonel Richmond, who wished to preserve all the old-time peculiarities of the place. The inner end of it had been closed by a strong door, so as to prevent anybody who might have the secret from entering in that way. But Nick was strongly of the opinion that it would not keep out the persons who were haunting the house, in case they desired to come in. If anybody was going in and out secretly, this seemed to be the readiest way, so Nick had resolved to watch the well that night. A little house with sides of latticework had been built over it, and vines covered it. Nick stealthily crept into its shadow and prepared for his vigil, but it was not destined to be a long one. He had not been there ten minutes before he saw a figure hastening along one of the numerous paths which wound through the grounds. This person evidently wished to avoid observation, and that was enough for Nick. He immediately started in pursuit. He trailed his man to the edge of the colonel's grounds. During this pursuit the man kept in the shadow of some trees, and Nick had no opportunity to see him clearly. But as the man stepped out into the highway, a ray of moonlight fell upon him, and Nick recognized him in an instant. It was Colonel Richmond. Why this man should be leaving his own house by stealth and under the cover of darkness was an interesting problem. Nick resolved to know all about it before the night was much older, so he trailed along. The colonel walked up the highway with rapid strides. About half a mile from the house he found a carriage standing on the shadow of a tree. Evidently he expected to find it just there, for he immediately jumped into it, and the driver whipped up his horse. Nick was unable to see the driver, for the carriage was a covered buggy, and had been standing with its back toward him. The horse was evidently a good one, but Nick overhauled him and got hold of the carriage behind. There was no chance for him to ride there, but his grip on the wagon helped him along, and he rang about eight miles quite comfortably. His presence so near was entirely unsuspected by the occupants of the carriage. It was favorably situated for overhearing their conversation, but unfortunately they did not say anything. Nick discovered that the driver was a woman, but he could only guess at her identity. At last they turned suddenly out of the road into the grounds of a private house. The sound of the wheels was evidently heard within, and the front door was thrown open, letting out considerable light from the hall. Nick could not go too near that light, so he let go and crept into some shrubbery. The carriage drew up before the door and the colonel and his companion hurried into the house, leaving the horse tied. The detective failed to obtain a good view of the woman or of the person who had opened the door. The latter seemed to be a servant. When the door had closed, Nick crept up. He manoeuvred carefully and discovered that there was somebody sitting in the hall just inside the door. Entrance by that means was out of the question. However, he succeeded without much difficulty in entering the house from the rear. He found himself in the kitchen from which he passed to a dining room. This apartment was almost totally dark. Nick felt his way to the side opposite the kitchen and came to a heavy pair of folding doors. From the other side came a confused murmur of voices, as if many persons were talking in hushed tones. Presently they became quite still, and then there arose the sound of music. It was a slow and somber strain, as from an organ gently played. Nick was crouching against the door among the folds of a curtain which could be drawn across. Suddenly he heard a slight sound behind him. He turned noiselessly. A white figure flitted across the room. Nick was at one end of the folding doors, and the figure passed to the other end and into the corner beyond. There it suddenly vanished. 
The light was so dim that Nick could not tell exactly what had happened. It certainly seemed as if the figure had gone straight through the wall. About a minute later, another form appeared in the same way. It crossed the room and vanished. Good, muttered Nick. I like these ghosts against any that Colonel Richmond can raise in his house. Almost immediately there was the sound of a voice in the room beyond the doors. Does any person present recognize a departed friend? it said. Then Colonel Richmond's voice arose, hoarse and trembling with emotion. Aunt Lavina, he said, tell me what you wish me to do. I will obey you absolutely. I thought so, chuckled the detective. The colonel has come to attend a spiritualistic seance.